This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hey, Feather Wild family, it's Carter Liu joining you for this week's Homebound episode, Almor Lada on Capitalists and Other Cannibals originally aired in 2017. We're presenting Homebound as an offering of curated episodes from the For the Wild archives that we hope may serve as a North Star as we traverse through this perplexing time, seeking out sources of inspiration. Alnor's work focuses on the intersection of political organizing, systems thinking, storytelling, technology, and the decentralization of power. We offer this episode during a time in which many of us have witnessed the tumultuous behavior of global markets, the true price of poverty in the face of a pandemic, utterly exorbitant corporate bailouts, and the impending collapse of the U.S. stock market. This conversation with Alnor invites us into guided conversation on neoliberal capitalism, the global economic system, and how we can work ourselves out of it. Listening to Alnor, we ask ourselves, Why does fear inherently limit our ability to build beyond? How does the myth of poverty alleviation further the colonial mindset? And most importantly, how does our relationship to spirit and place strengthen our resistance to self-perpetuating systems? We hope you enjoy this conversation. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Alnur Lada. Alnur's work focuses on the intersection of political organizing, systems thinking, storytelling, technology, and the decentralization of power. He is a founding member and the executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality, climate change, and poverty around the world. Thank you so much, Alnur, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I was hoping that we could begin this discussion by laying down a foundational understanding of the greater global economic system. Neoliberal capitalism operates under the guise that if the global economy is allowed to grow unrestrained or without limits, then wealth 
will eventually trickle down sufficiently enough to alleviate poverty. But when you look closer and examine the history and origin of globalized society, rooted in slavery and conquest, it's easy to see the inherent fallacy of this idea. Nations that are considered poor, such as those in the global south, are in reality far from poor. They are rich in natural resources that the capitalist machine yearns for. And the entire concept of rich and poor is defined by the value that is placed upon controlling and acquiring as much materials or really life, you know, as much of life as possible. And while the global GDP increased by 217% since 2010, the number of people living under $5 a day increased from 50 to 60% of the world's population. So I'm wondering if you could demystify why collective economic growth of the global capitalist system will never alleviate global poverty, but instead only shackle people with societal positions that sustain an uneven concentration of wealth. I think, you know, one of the first places to start is to really understand the ideology behind our current understanding of poverty. And the place to start is always the language itself. And so if you look at the way the UN or the Gates Foundation or Jeffrey Sachs or any of these um, sort of organs of the neoliberal system talk about poverty, it's poverty alleviation, right? Or any of the metaphors that make it seem like poverty is a disease. Eradication is another synonym. And the logic for them is very clear, which is poverty is a disease. There's this germ theory sort of understanding of where it comes from. And in that sort of guise, you look to solutions that are themselves, I guess, the antidote, right? And it's a very sort of linear, binary, Western rationalist, reductionist way to look at the world. And it sort of belies their colonialist logic in seeing these problems as problems that are ahistorical, that are just solvable through technical fixes. If you actually look at how poverty was actually created, it's a deep historical process. So to you know, take the piss of Bono and the One campaign and these sort of traditionalist thinkers, they talk about make poverty history, right? Was their campaigning rallying cry. And it's actually history that makes poverty. And if you fail to understand that, you'll actually never get to the right set of solutions, which are much more structural than they'd like to believe. Because again, ideology and self-interest comes into play. It's not convenient for them to see it this way. So when I say history makes poverty, part of what we need to look at is the enclosure movement in the United Kingdom that really started privatizing public lands that created the first big displacement of people, the sort of colonialism of the last 500 years that had this huge transfer of wealth from the South to the Northern uh, Empire countries like the United Kingdom and France, Portugal, and later on the United States. And to this day, of course, the United States and all of these Western uh, centers of power. And this was, of course, fueled by slavery and genocide and extraction of natural resources and wealth. And that hasn't never stopped. So until we really address that aspect of it, this idea of poverty alleviation as this trickle-down phenomena that if we just raise GDP, all boats will raise, is not only 
not true and sort of illusory in nature. It's actually a deeply political and ideological approach. And so the way the media portrays it is these people, the Gates and the Bonos and the Jeffrey Sachs of the world, are somehow these amazing do-gooders that are trying to really figure out these problems. But whether it's through avarice or ignorance, it doesn't really matter. What's happening is they're perpetuating a colonial mindset and they're perpetuating a solutionist mindset that's never going to get to the root. I'll just give you one example, and then maybe we can deconstruct their motivations a little bit together. But you know, if every dollar of wealth created 93 to 94 cents is, ends up in the hands of the top 1%, well, by definition, wealth creation creates income inequality. It creates poverty. And this is hardwired into the logic of the capitalist system because, of course, a certain group of people, largely white Western Europeans, largely males, have had a thousand-year head start on this capital. And so, of course, the, the system is rigged in their favor. And income inequality and concentration of wealth is increasing ever more, which is also built into the system. So their only solution to address these problems is more economic wealth. And that's a convenient solution for them when they're the prime beneficiaries of the system. Mm. And as we reflect on the roots of capitalism and imperialism, the pervasive ecological and spiritual destruction it has wrought and our collective journey towards decolonization, this question arises of how exactly this conditioning became so profoundly embedded within us and our societies. You have an amazing article, uh, Seeing We To Go, on capitalism, mind viruses, and antidotes for a world in transition. And in this article, you delve into the concept of the We To Go and how it defines the nature of modern capitalism. From what I understand, the we to go is a cannibalistic spirit within mythologies of indigenous nations, uh, Algonquin and Ojibwe, etc., of Northeast North America. And, you know, it, quote, delude their host into believing that cannibalizing the life force of others is a logical and morally upright way to live. Another, quote, raising the self-serving ego to supremacy. And so once you live in rejection of human exceptionalism and no longer separate yourself from the web of life, it's not difficult to acknowledge this cannibalistic nature of not only our political and economic institutions and societal superstructures, but also our consumptively conditioned colonized minds. So could you discuss the concept of we to go as a mind virus? this mass psychological infection from the perspective of cultural evolution and mimetics? Yeah, um, to go to this root, so wetiko is the, the Algonquin word for this cannibalistic spirit. And in Ojibwe, it's windigo or wintiko in, in Powhatan. It's a sort of, I guess, common concept in some ways and literally referred to cannibalism, the, the eating of flesh. And what a lot of this indigenous lore said was two things would happen when someone out of necessity even, you know, in, in a northern winter or whatever, ate another human being's flesh. One would be an icy heart, and the second would be this unnatural desire to consume more flesh. And when the First Nations communities of North America first interacted with the European colonialists, this word comes back into the vocabulary to describe the European colonialists, because that's how they saw their relationship 
with nature and, and of course, with the First Nations themselves. And I think if we go back far enough, the real root of the Wetiko virus, of the sort of cannibalism that's inherent in Western modern culture, comes from our separation from nature, which, you know, many argue that stemmed from the Neolithic revolution, from farming, from sedentary lifestyle. So we went from hunter-gatherers that lived in codependence with the mother. Our ancestors would go into nature and they would be in this natural bounty. They would hunt and gather the necessary food and calories they needed. And we know from a lot of the research in cultural anthropology, like Marshall Salen's work, the original affluent society, that hunter-gatherers actually lived not what we are told, the Hobbesian worldview of a sort of brutish, nasty, short live, but quite the opposite. They were working 10 to 20 hours a week. Their average calories were about 2,000 calories per person. We know this from teeth samples and bone density and other things. So they were living quite decent lives compared to even modern standards of how the majority of people nowadays live. And so and not to say we want to go back to that way of living, but there's something really interesting that happens when our livelihood comes from taming nature and extracting from nature and this sort of farming mindset. And this initial separation happens. And we know that some of the first buildings that are built in the first city-states of Ur and Babylon are the granaries. Because as soon as you have a surplus of food production, you then create a place to store that surplus. And then you need a military or militia or police or whatever to, to protect that surplus. And then hierarchy is created and you have your you know emperors and sun kings and all of that. And so, you know, from Babylon to New York is, is uh, just a very short distance both psychologically, culturally, and, and temporally. And so we end up in this place where we value the sort of brute strength of the male, which creates this sort of patriarchal culture. There's a culture of extraction, of rape. You know, we essentially have a rape culture as the dominant culture. That's what Western culture is. And I'm not just talking about the effects on women in this culture. And of course, that is the dominant thread. But, you know, the mother herself, right, to mother nature, to earth herself. And so it's really deeply embedded in the Western European psyche. And this is not to blame, you know, Western Europeans. When we came out of the Fertile Crescent, those were the heavily populated areas. And then through colonialism and imperialism and war and violence and expansion, this culture has become the dominant culture. And the way it's sort of affects us all is through memes, essentially, cultural ideas. And, you know, memes just are essentially the sort of base unit of culture. And they're transmitted in many ways. We don't even know, which is why understanding and deconstructing culture is so important to understand the ways in which we're controlled. And I also think that the sort of monotheistic religions, especially Judaism and Christianity, when they merged with capitalism in the Middle Ages, really created this toxic mix of sort of violent, savior, male-dominated culture that has mutated into what is now late-stage capitalism. And so we're all told that we need to work hard in a certain way to have certain status and to sort of represent our self-interest in order to create this perfect equilibrium, right? The, the invisible hand, Adam Smith's theory of the invisible hand, is the perfect mimetic virus, right? We know from 
uh, 30 plus years of economic data that it's fundamentally untrue, that if people behave selfishly, there will not be a perfect equilibrium. Quite the opposite. You know, you'll have the culture we have here, the dominant Western culture, which is destroying the planet, which is creating mass inequality, poverty, resource extraction, violence, etc., etc. And that is the logical outcome. But yet, in every economics textbook in the world, basically, we're told that this invisible hand is the sort of underlying logic of a well-functioning economy. There's a great Daniel Quinn line, who's the author of Ishmael, where he says, the new world fell not to a sword, but to a meme. And this is probably the meme. You sit there handing down orders. You examine the terms of the deal. A car is always waiting. Other hands turn the wheel. The doors slide open before you, the door slides shut behind. Other hands carry your luggage, weightier matters engage your mind. You take the gold out of the earth, you throw the corpses in. One crop is as good as another, as long as the cash keeps pouring in. The wheels must never stop turning, the machine must be obeyed. The future has got to be fueled, and there's a price to be paid. Black like the dust, brown like the earth, this is our land, the land of our birth. Silently digging, digging our graves, choking our bodies, choking our lives. Living on scraps, dying in debt, digging in darkness. So our children can eat Once we were free Greeting the sun Sharing the earth Giving thanks to the corn Sang with the waters Sang with the wind Danced with the drum Circled without end Now we are silent They have taken our tongues They have taken our pride They have taken our songs only our bodies, only our eyes Burn with the memory of the old ways Brown like the earth, black like the dust Who can we turn to? Who can we trust? It's so incredible to look back into history and look at what we're dealing with now and at least begin to understand these memes and the mind control that we're under. But, you know, I feel that wider circles of people are coming into recognition that industrial society in its unwavering attempts to consume the last remaining intact pieces of our land and waters is edging closer and closer towards total collapse. Mm. And it seems that even the system itself has a knowledge of this. And then in response, we're seeing fearful expressions of that, such as extreme leaders coming into power not to mention the fossil fuel extraction backed by the hands of militarism and war. So I'm wondering if you could share with us your understanding of this phase of late-stage capitalism we find ourselves in, first from a theoretical perspective, and then I'll have a second part to that question. 
when you say um, a theoretical perspective, it's interesting because uh, like I immediately go to more of a spiritual perspective because, you know, this crisis is not just political or economic. It is deeply spiritual. Modernity, as defined by the dominant Western culture, by a sort of faux-democratic liberal capitalist system, is really the height of spiritual bankruptcy. We've had this strange, like, secular Judeo-Christian ideology imposed on top of a neoliberal system that incentivizes selfishness and growth at all costs. Those are sort of the underpinnings of this sort of broader malaise that comes from this disconnection from nature that we talked about. And I think what we're seeing happening is Nobody really knows what's happening and nobody really has a sort of a broader perspective because our education system of the last 500 plus years has really lost all touch with the original wisdom of our ancestors, that indigenous knowledge that was always sort of rooted in the symbiotic relationship with Mother Nature and Mother Earth. And so we have this system that's bereft of all value and all meaning that's driving this capitalist machinery. It's like we have created our own greatest artificial intelligence, which is the market mechanism. And it's not guided by any set of first principles, like any understanding of why we're here as a species, where we're going, what's our purpose, what's our relationship to nature or the broader cosmos. We have no cosmovision in modernity. And what's replaced it is this scientific, materialist, rationalist worldview that makes us believe that we can understand all natural phenomena, categorize it and control it. And that is a very poor substitute for a spiritual belief system or a cosmovision of any kind. And so I think what's happening, even you know, with the Trump phenomena, is in absence of any sort of meaning or deep spiritual experience, and when you have a an architecture around us that's been created to separate us from nature, the urban environment being the exemplar of that, you know, cement and high-rise buildings and mass density. And we are living these lives of complete confusion and complete disconnection. And so in some sense, it's no one's fault, right? And in some sense, it's all of our fault. And so what happens is that when you know, we want to blame the Trump voter, for example, and think that they're somehow sort of responsible. But they are also just equally as lost and equally sort of suffering under this regime of modern late stage capitalism. I think part of what's happening is we have to find that place within us that allows these things to exist in our field. You know, there's a one percenter in all of us. There's a Donald Trump in all of us. And they wouldn't exist if it didn't exist within us. And that's not to say, and you know, I know this is sort of common spiritual and new age belief that all that matters is the inner work. Therefore, they'll draw that conclusion. And I don't think that's true either. I think we have to change the structure of the system and do the external work while doing this internal work. And it's not an either or, or one precedes the other. Uh, both are simultaneously necessary to bring in this new world that we know is possible. That reminds me of your article, Mystical Anarchism, A Journey to the Borderlands of Freedom. You urge in that article that we need these three levels to happen simultaneously. And with that, I'm talking about, you know, focus on inner work and the self and building alternatives at the community level, and then tackling the larger superstructures. 
And I think as we envision this dissolution of neoliberal capitalism, discussions on how to move forward grow and diversify. And what I want with this question is, what does this transition away from capitalism tangibly look like? You know, how do we practically get there? And are there any examples of the ways in which we can create positive feedback loops? So this is the $60 trillion question, right? Which is, what does the post-capitalist world look like? And I'm not sure there is a blueprint, and not that that's what you're saying at all, but I, I don't think there is one. You know, I come much more from like an anarchist political philosophy, which essentially just believes that our way out is self-organization at a local level. And the tough part of the situation we're in right now is what globalization has done is enmeshed us all into this matrix of violence and extraction and oppression. You know, none of us are free and none of us are outside of the system. You know, some maybe more than others, but even people who I know who are deeply political and deeply conscious and living in alternative communities, you know, they're still buying clothes that are uh, created in sweatshops and using technology that's built by slave labor and, and all of that, right? And what a totalizing system like our capitalist system does is it really sort of enmeshes us in that. And so as the system breaks down and the boom-bust cycles get deeper and sea levels rise because of the changing atmosphere and species go extinct because of climate change and all of that, we're all going to be so deeply affected by this. And I think one of the things we have to start thinking about is what does the transition infrastructure look like? And how do we actually start living the values of the post-capitalist world now? How do we start behaving as if we're already free? And that's going to look very different depending on your context and geography and cultural histories and all of those things. And so I think part of what needs to happen is we do need to start creating these experiments outside of the capitalist system, alternative communities and you know, non-debt-based currencies and cooperative ownership structures and mutual aid networks and all of these things that are already happening. But at the same time, we can create the best systems outside the structure, but if we don't have a deeper spiritual practice and a, you know a community of practice to do that work with we're just going to replace one system for another because we're going to import the values of hierarchy and oppression and patriarchy and all of those things that are embedded within the capitalist logic and so there's a you know a series of things that have to happen simultaneously and there's a, a great line from Dieter Dum who's the founder of Tamera an alternative community in Portugal where he says the mind is the base station of capitalism we could create all of this transition infrastructure outside of the system. But unless we do that deep programming, reprogramming and decoding ourselves, we are going to repeat the, the mistakes of the system. And if we also try to opt out without understanding how deeply interconnected we all are, we're going to create these little safe havens outside of deep structural change at a global level. Yes, if we don't do the deep inner work and let's say collapse happens this month, the masses would just rebuild something extremely similar to the system that we're in now. And I really appreciate what you've been saying about seeing Trump in all of us, seeing the 1% in all of us, seeing that we aren't separate and it's none of our faults, but it is all of our faults. And just understanding that dichotomy, the self-responsibility, but not getting crushed by the shame that comes with 
this cultural destruction, really. I want to dive back into anarchism before we move on, because, you know, where I see global capitalism is based upon the tenets of competitiveness and material wealth. Anarchism advocates self-governed societies based on voluntary institutions. So while I, you know, absolutely agree that frameworks that concentrate wealth at the top lead to undemocratic governance, you know, there just remains some vagueness to me that I struggle with. Because successful anarchy requires willing participation of every individual. So with such a varied spectrum of human temperament and determination, do you see a way in which we can scale up anarchist principles among a network of smaller communities around the globe? Yeah, I I do. I'm not sure. I think we're given this like false choice that either... There'll be this centralizing government that will sort of coordinate our efforts, or there's going to be this sort of breakdown and disillusion of organizing at a small scale. I think anarchism as a word has been tainted because it's the dominant culture needs to taint it because it is in many ways the only sane and viable alternative. But whatever we call it, even the idea of localism. To create strong, local, resilient communities and economies actually doesn't require every single member to be actively participating. What it requires is a ratification of power. And so, you know, what direct democracy is about is not necessarily everyone voting on everything all the time, but people voting on who they want to make the decisions for them and in what way and through what processes. And that's what we don't have. So the democracy we have in this sort of like electoral system is we are given a very sort of finite set of constraints. And within that, we vote one crooked politician or the other and or one crooked party versus the other. And there's no choice in that. You know, there's a a principle in anarchism called subsidiarity which is basically de-evolution of power down to the people who are most affected and allowing the people who are most affected to make those decisions on who will decide for them. And I'm not opposed to government in a blanket sense, even at a national level or a state level or whatever. But I think the role of government should be to localize power because the people who are living in community know how to best govern themselves. And that's the kind of system we have to figure out. And actually, that system will be, for using capitalist language and understanding, it actually will be much more efficient. And it would probably cost us much less. And we would be much happier. And people would have a much stronger sense of autonomy and agency in their own lives. And I actually don't think it's impossible. We also have to look at this from like a historical context. In some ways, globalized capitalism was sort of necessary to get us to a certain point. It's clearly outlived its purpose. Um, It's clearly creating much more damage and pain and violence and the destruction of our planet than probably ever needed to. But it did create this global infrastructure and this connective tissue and things like the internet and sort of an understanding of other cultures in a way that we probably wouldn't have had. And so the question is, How do we take the best aspects of this globalized system and synthesize them and take the best aspects of anarchism and localism and synthesize them and the best aspects of Western culture and technique and synthesize them and indigenous culture and the original wisdom, which have been, you know, proportionately 
misrepresented, if at all, in our dominant culture, and go back to those values and decide for ourselves what we want the post-capitalist world to look like. And I don't really know the answer to that. And I don't think there's a blueprint to that. But I think there's a possibility in those ideas that is much more potent and alluring and mythologically resonant than the bankrupt system of trickle down and the invisible hand and the market-based secular ideology that we've been given to date as the only option. One thing I was thinking about in that discussion is with so much land being gobbled up by global capitalist markets and faraway owners, I question private property. I'm just wondering, how do we tangibly dissolve the boundaries of private property on a small scale, as well as larger scales, such as national borders, particularly when the protection of such imaginary lines is so highly militarized? I guess in other words, I'm asking, how do we re-inhabit the commons so that we can mm. put these other practices into place? Yeah, so I, this is such a critical question, because if we look at what's happened historically, we used to have many ways to access the abundant wealth that exists on this planet. We used to have trade and barter and gift and hunting and gathering and fishing and all of those things. And now what's happened quite intentionally is that there's a monopoly on access to goods and services through debt-based capital that is printed by private banks and federal reserve systems. And so the commons itself has been privatized and there's no other way to access the commons except through debt-based capital. And in order to acquire that, you have to succumb to the logic of the system, which is psychopathic and short-termist and greedy and life-denying. So you either like opt into their system or you don't. And so one of the things we have to start thinking about is how do we create wealth in all its myriad of forms outside the existing capitalist structure? And there's many ways to do that, right? Just the very act of gifting undermines the logic of the capitalist system, which is all about transactionalism and commodification and all of those things. And so there is a way to undermine the logic, but we have to do it at a much more structural level. And I think there's a sort of a, a suite of ideas that are emerging in the global consciousness, You know, one of them being universal basic income. Right. Imagine everyone in the world got $20,000 or $30,000 a year. Um, you know, It's an idea that got resonance between both the left and the right. And of course, for the wrong reasons, the right wants to cut social security and social benefits and all of those things. And the right wants to bring back some kind of welfare state and prop up the economy through sort of Keynesian style spending. But there's a broader game at play here, which is, you know, you can imagine that if we created our own currency, whether that's a cryptocurrency or just, let's say, a tool to administer this, you could create a currency that was a complementary currency outside of the debt-based system that sort of had more of the values we would like to see. For example, it could be a demurrage currency, a negative interest currency. Money could decrease in value like every other commodity, grain, cattle, etc. These things don't have compound interest. They're not growing exponentially and therefore debt would not grow exponentially. And it would also disincentivize hoarding. If you didn't spend that money, let's say decreased in value, I don't know, 1% a quarter or something, you'd be incentivized to use that money or give that money away or whatever. It would also 
free people from the tyranny of bullshit jobs and help create a spiritual creative renaissance on this planet if the sort of algorithm of that money, if you will, accounted for carbon miles or uh, some other way to measure local spending, you could incentivize people to create strong local economies and disincentivize them from buying globalized goods. You know, there's no reason we should be shipping asparagus from Thailand to Vancouver, right? And if the externalities that are now just so casually put out into the system by corporations who don't pay any of those costs, if those were internalized within this kind of system, you would vastly shift the way goods and services are valued. And then you could also account for things like income inequality, right? If you and I are both cobblers and you're more charismatic than I am or you have a piece of technology, this type of currency could account for knowing how much income I'm getting from my livelihood versus you. And then I could have, let's say, a higher purchasing power to sort of account for those types of income inequalities. So you could see how these new systems that are emerging and these new ideas that are emerging, even though they're coming from the old logic, if repurposed, could sort of vastly you know, shift the structure of how we interact. In some ways, it doesn't matter what the ideas are, but what matters is the values that are at the heart of these ideas, which is why localism or anarchism is such a potent philosophy, because it's not about the mechanics or the delivery mechanism of how these things happen. The question is, do these things share the values of altruism and cooperation and generosity and interdependence and valuing the commons over privatization and all of these things that we know are so necessary for living sort of a thriving existence and an existence that's in symbiosis with nature and a sort of set of values that we actually aspire to as a civilization. And that's what's really critical about all of the post-capitalist alternatives. As you were responding to that question, what was popping into my mind was, you know, we have things that are local and, you know, putting these systems into place that, like you said, could make life actually thrive. And then it's funny because we're sold this other story that to make things thrive, we need technology, we need the solar plants we need new and better and more efficient like you had said though i love how you had talked about the word efficient as this colonial word and so i was thinking about your article from i think it's standing at the gates our generation has to convert ideas of change into action and you know this idea that the faithful validation of elitist science has just glorified technological advancement at all cost and it's bringing rise to the belief that human ingenuity has the ability to overcome the limits of Gaia. So I'd love if you could speak about the danger of techno-utopian worldview and this growing field of artificial intelligence and just the flaws of such scientific progress. Yeah, I think there's many spells that are cast through the dominant Western culture. And two that are the most pernicious in some ways is the idea of progress as linear, as this sort of constantly self-improving system that has led us to this logical point, which is the height you know, of human greatness, and this idea of ingenuity and competence, that somehow human beings can get themselves out of any situation and solve any problem. And 
I think the opposite of that is not misanthropy. It's not to say human beings cannot do that, but it's to recognize our own hubris and the limitations of the natural world. And when you combine this fallacy of progress as linear with this idea of ingenuity and What's important for us to understand is, well, where is this message coming from? And who's actually controlling the agenda of technology? And if you look at, for example, the sort of Silicon Valley, the, largely these people have gone to the same elite schools, the Stanfords and the Yales and the MITs or you know, the Indian equivalent IIT and all of these sort of highly rationalist high limited types of education. So they learn to be clever, but not to be wise. And they're completely disconnected from nature. They're the largest prime beneficiaries of the capitalist system. And they then have a monopoly on the human relationship with technology. And so we're actually developing our relationship with nature through these sort of elite institutions that are largely white, that are largely male, that are largely rationalist. And that is hugely problematic. And their level of optimism is also problematic because they don't really feel the effects of their own externalities or they don't feel the consequences of the destruction that has been left in the wake of their way of living. If you're a developer in San Francisco or you know working in an artificial intelligence lab at MIT, what do you really know about how 99% of humanity is living their lives. What do they know about the people living in the slums of Bombay or the townships of Johannesburg? Very little. And their concern is also very little. Like, actually, we're told that not believing in human ingenuity is misanthropic. But actually, overemphasizing technology and sort of linear progress is the most misanthropic act. And it's also an act that is anti-life in itself, because it doesn't take into account our symbiotic relationship with nature. We're not at the peak of evolution. We somehow think we've evolved outside of our post-mother, outside of Gaia. But actually, we're just the youngest species in an evolutionary order. And we may be required in some ways as a companion species, but not if we destroy all other life you know, as a consequence of our behavior. I think James Lovelock and others have talked a lot about this, that in Gaia theory, that we're not a necessary species in the same way as sort of a keystone species is in an ecosystem. Gaia is deciding whether we're worth it or not. You know, on the one hand, sort of 200 species a day are going extinct. And on the other hand, we may be part of some bigger plan to bring Gaian life out into the universe. Who knows, right? And I think what's being decided in some ways, the, the sort of jury is out, is will we learn from our mistakes and will we become, once again, a companion species that is in the service of life? Or will we continue to be sort of selfish, consumptive, wetico, cannibalistic species that believes in the hubris of our own technology and our own creation and in this narcissist way destroy ourselves and most of life in the process. Take me back again to where I lost my way and gave up everything the beating of a drum to follow and become just left of 
seems mandatory that we must re-inhabit a deep spirituality because this monopolization of this reductionist worldview has severed many people, their mind from spirit. The other side of that, though, is that it seems that many look towards spirituality as a means to better themselves, where even inspiration is commodified and fetishized for selfish interest. And to me, this can be described as just another symptom of the we to go, the extractive manifestations of spirituality. So could you speak about the inseparability of spiritual and political philosophy and perhaps shed some light on how mysticism can actually guide us as we envision a new political and societal framework? I think it's Part of what's happening is that language itself is such a limiting construct. And so the idea of spirituality and even words like mysticism or whatever, can we almost can't examine them outside of the construct of the modern capitalist system, which is this all-consuming sort of omnipotent deity, right, that we're all somehow embedded within and entangled with. And so, you know, if you haven't deprogrammed yourself from the idea of capitalism, which most of us haven't, we're not taught to critique the system, to see the superstructure. We're taught to fulfill a role that somehow contributes to that system. And those are very different educational ends. And our entire educational system is essentially vocational now. And it's about creating good consumers and good citizens that sort of help perpetuate this existing system that we should be so grateful to if it would only accept us, right? And and that's how most unemployed people feel because that's how what our culture has sort of made them feel. And so to see spirituality outside of that is very difficult. And industries like the self-help industry and the sort of dominant culture of they make such an easy target but i'm not trying to target the new age but this idea that spirituality is personal development outside of any traditional culture or practice is also hugely problematic because again it is wet to go it is consumptive right people go to ceremonies of all kinds whether that's a sweat lodge or an ayahuasca ceremony and they think of it as a transaction and they're like what am i getting out of this how is this going to help my personal development and the idea of development again is 
a colonialist capitalist construct. The idea that there is some arrow of development, and if there's development, then there's the underdeveloped, and there's the less developed. And we have to sort of free ourselves from all of those constructs. The way Eastern mysticism or yoga or Ayurveda are being used now is in order to help Westerners become better capitalists, you know, so they could be more flexible, so they could be faster day traders or have more balanced minds when they're going into the office environment. This is why the deprogramming has to be so all-encompassing. We have to question every aspect of why are we contributing to the system and really go into the deep self-exploration, which is also a collective exploration. And what that requires is the transcendence of subject-object duality. In the Western system, and I'm using you know generalities here, this is also true in Eastern systems, this is also true in Buddhism and Islam and you know all of these institutionalized constructs. We are somehow taught that the primary identity is the individual identity. Just think about every interaction we have in the outside world. We're filling out forms with our name on it. We have to show our IDs and our passports. And we're asked what we do for a living. And it's just this reification of the I and of the self and of the ego. And then we're told, if we're lucky, that occasionally there's this universal identity that we can get a glimpse of through mystical experiences or psychedelic experiences or, or whatever. But if you look at the, the great mystical traditions, whether that's indigenous cultures or Sufism in Islam or Kabbalistic traditions in Judaism or Gnostic traditions in Christianity, the primary identity is the universal identity. And the secondary identity is the small I, is the self. And the goal of a lot of these practices, you know, including Tantra, including the use of sacraments like ayahuasca and San Pedro and Iboga and all of these traditions, is to sort of transcend the subject-object duality, which is the most difficult thing to do. But we have this architecture around us, this social architecture, this fabric that prevents us from doing it. So it's this sort of like double challenge of not only not seeing ourselves as separate from the living world and from each other and from nature and from our ancestors, but also doing that within a context that reifies the individual at every single step. And that's really the challenge of spirituality. And this is when I talk about mysticism, what I mean. All mysticism is, is the direct experience with the transcendent other, whatever you want to call it, God, creator, great spirit, Allah. For example, I come from a Sufi tradition. And in the Sufi tradition, which is the mystical branch of Islam, what we believe is Allah is just a metaphor for the universe. And we are Allah unfolding on itself and becoming self-aware of itself. And the Vedic traditions, the Vedas are the sort of pre-Hindu spiritual texts that both Hinduism and Buddhism and other branches of Eastern mysticism come from, have a very similar belief set that we are essentially consciousness becoming self-aware. And to hold that perspective is a very challenging thing, especially when you don't have a tradition to do it within. And I'm not a traditionalist by any means. I don't believe in sort of old-style lineage and you know needing to sweep up the ashram for 10 years and getting transmissions from a guru and all of that. I believe in direct experience, but I think it's also helpful to study and learn and understand the, the mystical aspects of these great traditions in order to synthesize and create our own way. And then the last thing I'll say is I also really believe in the plants. I think having a direct experience with 
plant intelligence, whether that's through ayahuasca or psilocybin mushrooms or San Pedro or what have you, is one of the most effective and direct ways to have that type of Gnostic communion. These plants are hundreds of millions of years older than us in evolutionary terms. All the great civilizations we know have had symbiotic relationships with sacrament master plants, teacher plants, except for Western culture. And we can see where that's led us. And I think there's a beauty in humbling yourself in front of a super intelligent plant that holds these psychedelic keys and go into the boundary dissolving space where we can see the programming of our culture and our limiting beliefs and how they've been foisted upon us, whether those are capitalistic or institutional religious beliefs or family, cultural beliefs that are products of nationalism or whatever, all of these limiting beliefs are preventing us from sort of achieving this state. And without sort of achieving this state, it's very hard to get to that place of subject-object duality because it just then becomes this intellectual thing you're trying to understand rather than actually becoming it. And that's really the key, I think, and a sort of a challenge for us as a civilization. How do we take these things from abstract knowledge to deep innate wisdom? And I don't know of a sure method than humbling yourself in front of the plant. When I say things like that, people think I'm somehow being dogmatic, right? And the plants are the only way. And, and I really believe truth is a pathless land. I see my mom's practice, for example. You know, my mom meditates every day from three to five in the morning. She has since she was seven years old, and she took a vow to do that. And she can get into these states through that practice or other Sufi practices like the whirling dervish practice of the dance or yoga or other forms of meditation or chanting or tantra or whatever. There's many ways to sort of get to this state of transcending subject-object duality. But what the plants do is that they're the direct emissaries of Gaia and they hold their own consciousness. And the communion with those plants provides insight and it's not the answer you still have to do the work and different plants will give different messages i think it is another tool and another practice and another avenue to get to these states that are somehow sort of disconnected from us largely because the dominant culture villainizes them and that's why i overemphasize them right and anything the dominant culture tells us we shouldn't do uh, or makes illegal or diminishes even culturally is sort of a clue to where we should look <laughs> that's how i see it well people ask me well you know what does the post-capitalist world look like and you know i obviously i i don't know but what i say is just like we take the dominant capitalist system and like turn it on its head and it's most likely going to look pretty much the opposite of what our current system looks like. So in our current system, we value abstract thinking like high-velocity trading and running a hedge fund, and we devalue important work like raising a family and you know, educating our children. And we essentially just have to do the opposite of what Wetico culture is doing. And the plants are the sort of ground zero of that starting place. Well, I couldn't agree with you more that plants are the ground zero and from personal experience, just being with plants, whether I'm ingesting them or breathing them in or just being quiet with plants has completely guided my existence and fulfilled me in a way that I didn't even know was possible until I began a relationship with plants and soil and fungi and just the whole community that that creates life itself. So I am very much 
in agreement with that, just getting out of the human mind, the human language, the human supremacy and opening up to all the different forms of communication and all the different spirits and to me, their kin and to be able to listen to them and their needs and their wisdoms is just so it just expands the heart and the mind in a way that I think is mandatory to really begin to understand what we could transition into. I think it gets tricky when we stay too much human-centered. And I know for me, it can kind of get me into vortexes where I can't get out of it. But when I open myself up to the intelligence of plants and life, things become so much more clear and priorities shift drastically. (laughs) Where I want to go back to wrap up this conversation is bringing up the rules, the organization that you founded. And, you know, one thing I found really interesting is many of us think about the World Bank or the Red Cross or, or basically thinking that there's other institutions that are taking care of things. You know, money is going into places that are actually helping support people in other places. And it's really not true. You know, that's just one thought I had, but I would really just love to open up the floor to you and encourage you to speak about the rules, but also what is the most passionate thing that you are driven towards right now with your studies and activism and research? It's a great question. And it's sort of an ongoing inquiry. I feel like part of what we're trying to do at the rules is help bring what seem like radical ideas and alternatives into the mainstream discourse uh, in a way that makes them feel like common sense and to expand the Overton window, you know, the concept in sociology of what is deemed acceptable to discuss and sort of shatter this illusion that there is no alternative. It's a broad inquiry. And a lot of what we're thinking about right now is the role of something like universal basic income, but also things like regenerative farming. We know that certain types of organic no-till regenerative farming are sequestering huge amounts of carbon that if done on scale, we could probably not only um, mitigate climate change, but potentially reverse it. And a lot of these solutions already exist. And a lot of the sort of community models that are inherently post-capitalist already exist. You asked me for inspiration earlier, and I think I either got distracted or evaded the question somehow. But I think communities like the Zapatistas, the autonomous community and region in Chiapas, the, the Zapatistas are this amazing group of people farmer peasant activists who have really created the post-capitalist world and have created an education system and an ideology that's deeply rooted in indigenous wisdom. And we're seeing it happen all around the world. And what we're really interested in is finding these alternatives and helping to amplify and promote these alternatives. But I think what's necessary is both resistance and renewal. We can't just fight the old system, which is like where the, the traditional left is stuck for lots of reasons. A friend of mine named Bayo Okomalafi likes to say, part of the crisis is the way we're responding to the crisis. And that's definitely true for the activist community and and for the left. Like we're in this old reactionary model of just being in the resistance. And I think we also have to be in the renewal. We have to create these alternatives and we have to live them. And part of what we're trying to do is also live those values ourselves. 
and this is also a sort of critique I have with the traditional left, is that there's a sort of meanness and a crassness and desire for sort of efficiency that makes people not necessarily that nice to each other. And, and I think if we want to create a, a resonant field where we're attracting other people to come to these alternatives, we have to create a culture where people want to be there you know, where we are treating each other with with reverence and awe and appreciation and bringing in the spiritual practices, not amputating one side of our life for another. And a lot of the New Age sort of spiritual movement is very fearful of being in the political spectrum for lots of reasons. And, you know, I think one of them is, is self-inflicted by the left is that we haven't created an enticing space for people to convene. And, and that's what I loved about Standing Rock. You know, Standing Rock really did that. It, it really sort of created the sense that the political is spiritual, that this is ceremony, this is prayer. And it's not good enough just to pray in absence of doing something about it, that these two actually work together. And I think that's this sort of the new way that's emerging and what we want to be part of in whatever way we can contribute. And we don't necessarily have the answers, but there's this gathering that's happening. There's this sort of merger of tribes and medicines and approaches that is coming together to create this new way. And I think what the political world is starting to understand and the world of activists is that if we're not rooted in spirit and in ceremony and in prayer, we're just operating on sort of one limited rationalist plane that actually serves the likes of the World Banks and the Monsantos and the UN and, and, and all of the apparatchiks of neoliberal capitalism. And so we actually, we have to conjure the spirits. You know, we have to ask our ancestors for help. And in that sort of merger of those, our spiritual evolution will speed up, as will our political evolution. And what I'm seeing happening with the New Age community is there used to be a lot of, well, I don't want to get involved in politics because it creates dualism. But fearing dualism also creates dualism. And they're understanding that, that there has to be a more integral yoga, which is like what Sri Aurobindo, the, the great Indian mystic of the, the 50s and 60s, used to talk about is the aim is not to meditate in a cave, but to change the third dimension. That is the application of the spiritual work. And somehow these two are coming together in a way that is, is going to shift consciousness. There really is no other option. You know, at best, we have 20 years left of the Western way of living. Can you imagine perpetual economic growth, you know, even at 3% for another 20 years or nanotechnology or artificial intelligence? It's, it's impossible for these things to continue growing at these exponential rates. And so we have to get to a state as a species that we go from this sort of immature adolescence of growth at all costs and selfishness and cannibalism to a more mature sort of steady state, interdependent, globalized approach that is based in local community, but also in spiritual practice. Well, thank you so much, Al-Noor, for your work in the world and for all you out there who are listening. You can find Al-Noor and his work at therules.org. He'll also be speaking at the Eclipse Festival in Oregon, actually right around the corner this month in August. And Al-Noor, is there anywhere else that you'd want to direct people to to learn more about you or other events you're speaking at or just other resources that you want to share? No, I think The Rules is a great starting place and you can follow me on Twitter or send me a message. It's at Elmer Lada. Feel free to reach out directly. 
I don't do that much public speaking and I'm more focused on the work of the rules, but it's always a pleasure to speak with people like you, Ayana, and others who are also on the same mission of being in service of Gaia and the unfolding evolution. Yeah, I'm honored to be in the journey with you. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. This episode is in partnership with Organ Eclipse and Living Village Culture, who will be hosting the Shrines to the Cosmos, facilitating the community eclipse ritual, and teaching their ritual performance immersive at the festival this year. Head over to livingvillageculture.com and organeclipse2017.com to learn more. Al Noor, as well as myself, will be talking this year at the festival. I'll be sharing a talk called For the Love of the Wild, and then hosting a panel governed by nature, rethinking society from Earth up, which Al Noor will also be on. So please come say hello if you're there. Today's music you heard was Leon Russellon with Who Reaps the Profit, Who Pays the Price. Then Sally Seltman with Right Back Where I Started From. The theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River by Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our research director, Madison Mogulski, and Reach Out and March Young for their production expertise. Be sure to head over to ForTheWild.world to sign up for our newsletter to find out about upcoming podcast events and the One Million Redwoods Project. And please make a contribution, as we need your support to keep the show rolling. Thank you so much, and until next time.